Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the Nordic Asia Podcast. Welcome to the Nordic Asia Podcast, a collaboration sharing expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. My name is Therese Gagnon. I am a postdoctoral researcher at the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies in the Department of Political Science at the University of Copenhagen. I am here today speaking with Dr. Megali Bendon. She is a textile historian focusing on the contemporary history of Southeast Asian dress and textiles, Cambodian silk practices in particular. In 2021, she completed her PhD in history of design at the Royal College of Art of London with a thesis titled Silk in Post-Conflict Cambodia, Embodied Practices and Global and Local Dynamics of Heritage and Knowledge Transference from 1991 to 2019. She is currently a European Union Marie Curie postdoctoral fellow attached to the Center for Textile Research at the University of Copenhagen since January 2022. As a fellow, she is pursuing her examination of Cambodian textile practices in the 20th century from the 1970s to the 1980s, this time exploring further the decades of political unrest and dictatorship, relying on the textile collections and archives of the National Museum of Cambodia and Tulslang Genocide Museum, which we will be discussing in this podcast episode. Welcome to the podcast, Magali. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. Just to get started, can you tell us a little bit about how you first became interested in working with textiles and Southeast Asian textiles specifically? Yeah, it's a good question. I think in my case, it's a combination of personal experience, but also a constant question about identity, I guess, because in my case, well, I'm, I'm mixed race. I'm French and Vietnamese, French on my dad's side and Vietnamese on my mother's side. But I grew up in Montreal in Canada before moving to France. And my mother has been through uh, the Vietnam War as, as a kid first and then as a teenager and then as a young woman. And so there is not much from this time that she kept in terms of objects. And I do remember that Textiles, I think, were a few things that she had brought with her when she moved to France at age 18. She had two dresses from that time from Vietnam, and that was everything she got. And as a kid, I was always very moved by those objects and was always trying to see them, to touch them, to look at them. There was something I I found quite moving and and relevant to, I, I don't know, I think there was something there. I was trying to find something there that I was needing. And from there, I think there, there's been a, a constant interest in connecting things and reconnecting things. And I do find that textiles uh, and, and cloth and clothing are a great means to do that because they're, you know, on the body, they're sensuous, sensory objects, and, and they connect to people's cultures and people's skills and crafts. So they're quite deeply embedded within people's cultures. So since then, I don't know. I think I've been I've been pursuing that road and I've done that through different means. And one of them was being a designer, uh, first a textile designer, and then moving into documentary, interested in textile practices around the world, especially in Southeast Asia. And then eventually going back to uh, academia in 2015, uh, first with an MA in New York at FIT on a Fulbright Fellowship and then continuing with the PhD and so forth. And, and that brings me here today. So the constant questions I've been looking at are loss and uh, regain or reclaiming of identity through textiles and and dress. So after long years of soul searching, I do think that this stems from this, this kind of mixed background 
and also relationship to objects and how uh, in some cases there's a scarcity of objects and they tell way more than the abundance of things that, that people sometimes have. So there's, I think that comes maybe from there. And the interest in Southeast Asia, I guess, is also cultural in my way, not necessarily approaching uh, Vietnamese history directly, but through kind of a tangential means by looking at Cambodia and Cambodian history and textiles, which I discovered also through traveling with my mother in the 2000s. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. That's really beautiful. Yeah, I think it definitely um, connects to a lot of my interest as well of the materiality of things and move, moving with those things. And um, yeah, I just agree. Those are really potent sites of inquiry. And I do think that everybody's a researcher for specific reasons. I think we all have very personal reasons behind our very serious research. So it's something I'm interested in hearing in, in other people's path and careers as well. Absolutely. Yeah. It's really kind of strange. I think that we don't talk about it more because the way that no. I think most of us or almost all of us come to our research topics is very personal and specific, but it kind of gets hidden behind this sort of professional version of ourselves that we present. Absolutely. I agree with that. Actually, I got interested in my research topic by eating and gardening. <laughs> oh, wow. Physical embodied experience also. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, so maybe can you tell us a little bit about Tolslang for those who might not be familiar or for those who are not updated on the details? What is Tolslang and how did this collection of textiles that you're working with, what is the history there? Right. So Tolstang, I mean, originally uh, is located in Phnom Penh in Cambodia and originally was a high school that was taken over by the Khmer Rouge in 1975, basically and turn into a prison or a center for interrogation and a center for torture during the Khmer Rouge regime by 1976 until the collapse of the regime in 1979 and the uh, arrival of the Vietnamese forces. So it was a secret prison because by 1975, Phnom Penh was evacuated. All civilians were forced to leave and go into different areas in the countryside and being reassigned to a different role in society, often put to forced work. So the city was somewhat left empty, but there were still some factories, still some organization units for the Khmer Rouge and the specific site of prison. And it was changed, the name changed into S21 at that time and was directed and managed by different people, but one of them was Duke. And so it was found, this prison was discovered a few days after the collapse of the regime when everybody, the Khmer Rouge, fled and, and left the city of Phnom Penh in January 1979. But S21 was not really a prison in the sense that they kept people for a really long time. I mean, some people stayed, some prisoners stayed for some time, but also they were quickly processed through this prison. And the number that we think now was uh, imprisoned and then mostly killed is around 17,000 people. So it's, it's a pretty uh, grim uh, account. Um, and there were no very few survivors. That's why also I'm saying that it was necessarily a prison to keep people alive uh, as prisoners of war, as much as to process culprits or to assess the amount of culprits in the regime that they could charge. So um, this site, you know, you can still visit to the present day. It was turned into a memorial first and then a museum, the Tulsang Genocide Museum, reopened by the 1980s, early 1980s. 
And to the present day, it's one of the main sites to commemorate, both to try to understand what happened in Cambodia in the 1970s and the late 1970s, and what we now call a genocide. So it's an interesting place to visit and a complex experience because you're basically walking in the former prison as a tourist or as a visitor. And so there's a very strong, how can I say, empirical experience in walking in those halls. And you are kind of feeling somehow the experience with the light, with the the setting, with the fact that they kept a lot of the uh, objects of torture, the beds and the shackles and the, the stains sometimes. And my interest really is is not as much in this experience, but still in some ways connected because I'm interested in textiles and clothing. And it's not really something that you think about right away when you think about such a site of, you know, atrocities. It's, you don't think about that. Textiles are nowhere in some ways. It's almost nowhere to be found. But there were actually some textiles and clothing, obviously, that were, that I consider as a byproduct of those years at the prison. And they are interesting and important because they provide a different type of information than what we know and than what we have. And so I got interested in trying to approach a different form of history or a different form of material culture associated to that site. The textiles, basically, and clothing, prisoners, when they arrived at the prison right away, they were taken in the streets. They didn't have time to pack anything. So they came with very few means, usually what they had on their shoulders, basically. And men, women, and also sometimes children were taken. And all kinds of people, you know, in the beginning, the first waves, it could be opponents of of the regime, intellectuals, artists mostly political prisoners in the beginning or people considered opponents. And then eventually the regime kind of turned against itself and there were lots of purges against Khmer Rouge cadres and, and guards and so and military also forces. So eventually the prison started to receive different waves of people that were also former Khmer Rouge that were taken. But the principle of the way they were being processed, and that's a horrible name, to a horrible word to use process as almost they're not human, uh, they're cattles, but similar in some ways because there's such a process of dehumanization through the way they were taken in the prison and put in the cells, basically, put in records and put in cells. So they were coming with what they had on their shoulders and then they were being photographed. And they were being very meticulously photographed in those haunting portraits that we can see at the prison. There were those black and white mugshots, basically. And so their prisoners were taken in their clothes. Some of them were wearing everyday clothing. Some of them were wearing military clothing, dark clothing as well, military fatigue as well. Some of the men were bare chested. So in that case, they were given a sarong or krama to cover their shoulders and to allow, allow the guards to add a tag with a number. So to clip a tag on their chest with, on fabric. And once the mugshots were taken, then the prisoners were often stripped from all belongings. So uh, men were often not naked, but almost just wearing undershorts. Women were permitted to keep their tube skirts, their sarong at least. But clothing was considered almost a privilege and you had to earn it in some ways to have it. So the few survivors who talked about what happened said they were freezing it and they're really cold because they didn't have a lot of clothing. So all of this clothing was transited through the prison. There was not like a proper system about cleaning them, about 
giving them to other people, it was a bit of an organic process. But through having 17,000 prisoners and people killed, it makes a lot of clothing. It makes a lot of garments left. There were textiles and clothing found after Liberation Day on January 7, 1979. And one of the kind of heart-wrenching story about textiles and how it's kind of the starting point for the collection at the museum is that the Vietnamese soldiers, when they arrived with the journalists in the prison, they found children, four child survivors, and one of them was Nguyen Chan Par and his brother. And to survive, they hid under a large pile of cloth that was behind the prison because they didn't really know what was going on. And so they rushed and hid under this big pile of clothing while, I guess, all the guards were escaping and leaving the, the prison. So it starts, you know, on the very first day of discovering this site, textiles are really there. They were this massive pile, but this pile that I think is uh, evidence that something happened, not just the bodies that were found, but also this big pile that way more people were killed there because it was a, a secret prison site uh, for all these years. And also to say that S21 was not the only prison site across uh, Cambodia, but it's the one that was found that was the most documented, where most information was found, and probably the, the largest site for that. So that's the starting point, is this big pile of clothing and what to do with that. And then after that, they found clothing in different levels of the building. The building, S21 site was quite large at the time, was larger than the actual museum site. And so they collected lots of clothing that they found and they gathered them. And several thousands of articles of clothing were collected by 1979, 1980. Wow. Yeah. As you say, that's such a powerful testament to the, the people that were moved through this prison and seeing the material remains or representation of these people's existence and, and the time that they spent there. So can you tell us a little bit more about the process? I understand that these textiles went through a few different phases of yeah. their life within this space, and there were some different movements that occurred. So can you walk us through that process? Yeah, absolutely. I'm a textile historian interested in trajectories of, of things. So I'm interested in the objects themselves. Obviously, that's a big part of the research I'm conducting, but it's also how things got to be, how things transited, how things got to exist. And the genesis, basically the history behind things. Because when you go to the museum now, you will see textiles. There's a current exhibition happening right now that has just opened at Tulsang Genocide Museum that is showing some of those garments and is beautifully made and shows the effort, also the conservation effort that's been behind the conservation of those textiles and the, those fragments and clothing. So visitors sometimes come in and they see things and that's what they see. And but the process to get there was a very long, complex one. So in 1979, it's not a museum yet per se. It's a place to show international guests, diplomatic officials, journalists, the torture that took place at S21. And it really becomes more of a museum by 1980 as an official opening. And so all of those garments that were collected around the prison site, a lot of them were cleaned by the early museum work team. And they were showcased in the galleries, in the permanent galleries of the museum, which is also the prison. And so originally it was shown as a huge pile again, 
as an enormous, almost a mountain of clothing that visitors could see. There was just, a, they could almost touch them. And even there's some stories that in the beginning, people were so, Cambodians were in such dire conditions that they would come sometimes and pick some clothing for themselves because they really lacked uh, everything by then, by 1980. You know, the, the museum at the time, it was the Vietnamese who were in charge of, of Cambodia at the time when once they arrived in the, the country. So there's some narrative behind the formation of that museum. And I think the effort was to kind of put the accent on the atrocities that the Khmer Rouge did, but also to connect those atrocities very strongly to crimes such as the Holocaust. And let a bit behind, in the background, the history that the Khmer Rouge originally claimed themselves to be communists, revolutionary communists. And I think the Vietnamese at the time did not really enjoy that narrative. And so the idea was really to connect those atrocities to the atrocities in Auschwitz, for example. And that's interesting for us because the way the display was made also connects to that. And the, the first museum's form of Tulsang was thought or designed by this Vietnamese colonel, Mai Lam, uh, who had also traveled to Germany to look at how things were presented. And so this big pile is reminiscent of what you would see in, in Auschwitz with the big pile of, of shoes and even the sensory reaction, the, the strong impression on the visitors, I think, is connected to this experience in Auschwitz. So this is kind of how the big pile came to be. And at the time also at the museum, you can also be, see a big pile of shackles. They were not shown as objects. They were shown as a mass of destruction, basically. And so visitors started commenting on the stench, even though the pile, most of the garments on the pile had been cleaned and boiled Still, I think visitors did not enjoy that so much. So by 1991, the piles of clothing had been moved to the top floor of Building B, the main one of the main buildings of the museum. And then there was a massive storm also in 2011 that damaged the building and the clothing. So again, the piles were separated for storage in plastic bags and crates. And only a small amount, 275 objects, were kept and shown in window casing in the permanent galleries that have remained as is until 2020. All those clothes that were put in plastic bags and crates were put in different parts of the museum under staircases in places and were left like that for some time and a bit forgotten. And it's only by 2015 that the new director, the new appointed director, Che Vissot, uh, he stumbled upon those clothing. Uh, they were rotting, they were infested by termites. He stumble on those objects and thought, well, what to do with those? We have to reclaim them. We have to make something out of them. They belong to the museum. And so he conducted with some volunteer students from the university where he taught, the Royal University of Fine Arts, the sorting of those textiles into categories and a, a temporary storage to protect them in some ways. And then eventually through time and funding and fundraising, he managed to get the support of the U.S. Embassy uh, Ambassadors Fund for Cultural Preservation. And by 2017, he brought in the American textile conservator, Julia Brennan, to devise a mass treatment protocol on those objects. And Julia Brennan is a very talented conservator, and she had experience also in working in Rwanda on a genocide site. And I think she used that experience. And she also worked a lot in Southeast Asia, in Thailand also. So she came 
in the project and started also training local staff, especially in-house conservation specialist Kochenda and her team. And so from 2017 to now, 2021, I would say, there has been a large, very ambitious conservation program between her and on-site staff and over several years. And they managed to implement a protocol to get a storage system that would be a cheap or low cost, but that would allow all those objects to be conserved in a better condition because it's very humid in Cambodia. So things tend to rot very fast and it's hot. So for textiles, it's not very good in general to, to keep textiles in good condition. And I mean, long story short, approximately 3,000 pieces of clothing have been inventoried, photographed, conserved, and stored in the climate-controlled system. Wow. And about 1,000 has been treated, basically, really, to conserve them on a, on a longer term. So conservation, I think, is a very important aspect of this history. And there's a sense of reclaiming and a sense of healing, probably, that is possible through that process. It was, I think, talking to Julia and Chenda and people in her team, a challenging process because of the smell, because of the termites, because of the stains, because of the dust. It was a bit of a difficult endeavor, but a brave one, and it needed to be done. So they did it. But it's wonderful what they've done, I think, because now there is this large collection of objects and textiles and a wealth of things that we can learn from. And it allows people like me who are not conservators, but historians to be able to come and try to, with them, obviously, make sense of, of those objects, if there's some sense to be made. And it moves from a pile to plastic bags to an actual archive or collection of objects. And that is a tremendous feat, I think, on, on the part of the museum and, and people like Julia, who all worked uh, so much all these years. Yeah, it was really fascinating. And as you say, it must have been such an incredibly hard work to do. And it is extremely interesting to think about the kind of intentional optics of presenting things as a pile and that kind of undifferentiated quantity and mass, and then shifting from that to the emphasis on the conservation of individual pieces and kind of presenting them as an archive or as a collection and seeing them as a window into history rather than just yeah. a collective effect, I think is quite a fascinating movement in and of itself. Yeah, I think that's key here. Thank you for bringing that up because I think from the, a pile that says the amount of death, I guess, the amount of death, there are also anonymous. It's about the anonymity, I guess, or, or the fact that it speaks to that dehumanization, the fact that, you know, people don't matter, didn't matter, or they were just processed, as I use that word, uh, kind of on purpose, because Riti Pan, the, the Khmer director, called the S21 the Khmer machine. And there's an idea of almost a factory of like processing, photographing them, putting them into confession, taking their clothes off, killing them, and then moving on to somebody else. And so the humanity of the people, wherever they came from, wherever the background was, is completely erased. And using a pile to create this feeling of awe and a horror, I guess, is efficient. I think it was very efficient in a way that they wanted to show the exactions of the, the atrocities of the Khmer Rouge in 1979, because it was a country that was closed off from the rest of the world and nobody really wanted to see what was going on there. 
So that makes sense in that way, within that political context, obviously. But now I think 30 years later, we're approaching a, a different way of seeing things and different way of looking at things. And it is very meaningful to me that somebody like J.P. Sot would understand the value of objects as much. Beyond also textiles, he also started to look at the walls of the museum or the prison because people had left graffitis, inscriptions. And he also assigned a team of volunteers to photograph those inscriptions, those texts, as if the prison, the site itself, offered some textual evidence as well as not just a framework for this, the prisoners to exist or like a, a building, but also a space in itself that was living through that time. And those inscriptions, I think, are seeing that. And textiles, I think, also play a similar role into shifting the narrative or at least nuancing the perspectives on that place, but also on the people who were there. I think it's so interesting as you've described this huge imbalance in power in record keeping and the narrative that's been told. And obviously those running the prison had almost complete power and control over the narrative and the record keeping that was going on. And the fact that that's been studied so much. And then now is the time to really pay attention to the details and the histories and stories that these material objects might tell, since that was, you know, maybe one of the only means people had of registering their experience, including the graffiti on the walls. And I think, yeah, your your role coming to this now that the conservation work has been done or is continuing to be done and your attunement and expertise as a historian and a textiles expert is it's incredible to think about what kinds of things might be revealed, even in their quietness, even in their incomplete nature because of yeah. the, the very physicality and quality of these um, kinds of archives and testaments, as you say. But I'm wondering if you could tell us just a little bit about what kinds of stories or possible narratives you think textiles in particular might open up about this history. There's a tremendous amount of things that you can find still on this collection. I mean, so far it's been cataloged, not cataloged per se, but inventoried. And so they have about 1,300 recognizable pieces, 2,000 garments, and approximately around 270 one-of-a-kind items. So you can already see families of things emerging. Most of the clothing really is military things. So uniforms, basically. And the biggest category is actually caps, hats, in the Chinese style, Chinese hats, military hats. But you have pants and shirts, t-shirts, socks, even shoes, boots, sandals, some carrying pouches, militia bags, all kinds of objects like that, even underwear. So it's it's pretty broad, the amount of things. It's mostly menswear, I would say, less than women's wear, which is consistent with what was going on in the prison. It was mostly men, though there were some women as well. There's some children's clothing, which I find really the most difficult to, to approach. And there's a range, mostly I would say, uh, machine-made industrial clothing. Nothing that seems handcrafted, mostly. Only two silk scarves were found. Very few luxury items, nothing of, of that sort. So it's interesting in that way. It shows a different vision also of production. You can learn a lot of things about textile production at the time. You can learn things about also what people wore in 1975 and what they came to wear later on up to 1979. Because, for example, 
when the Khmer Rouge arrived to power, they changed rules about clothing, what people could, were allowed to wear. And all of a sudden, they were mostly forbidden to wear things. And they were forbidden to wear color, wear anything that looked luxurious, looked cultural, like silk, anything connected to their religious practices, you know, to go to the pagoda, for example. Mm. And they were forced to wear dark, muted clothing. So if they didn't have anything of that sort, they had men and women had to dye their clothing. They found natural dyes to do that or mud, or they would get dark shirts and that would be the, the process. So the objects that we found that were more of the you know, 1917 style, because in the 1970s, Cambodian people, and especially in the cities, they were wearing imported Western clothing styles with form-fitting designs and bold 1960s, 70s patterns. So you can find a few of those objects in the collection. And so you can imagine that they would be worn by people in the beginning of the regime. So maybe closer to 1976, when the prison opened. And they were also most likely what the Khmer Rouge called the new people, meaning the urbanites versus the old people that were praised more, let's say, who were in the countryside. But it's going to be, for example, a lot of the questions that come up are, can you identify the clothing and match them with victims? I think that's the question that comes up a lot. And the, the answer is, is mostly no. So it's a different kind of, you can't really match a body, a person to clothing. And those clothes have been left for so long that how can you find evidence for forensics in like a DNA? So there were no DNA records of people in 1917 in Cambodia. So I think this is kind of a very Western imaginary about what to do with those objects. And, and the goals, I think, are more humble, but maybe also more realistic and more maybe more genuine in some ways in the approach that the museum has been carried on, I think. But at the same time, you could find some practices of dress that were relevant and, and that connect with some of the objects. Among those 270 objects are considered one of a kind. You have a lot of patched, mended garments, shirts that are heavily patched with stitching, different patched of different fabrics in them, especially in the inside, to protect those shirts and, and shorts and, and clothing. And those are incredible objects because they are almost a map of people's lives mm. in the sense that you can really see that maybe they only had one shirt and they had and the tremendous hardship they had to go through to keep that shirt in the best condition possible. So anything that looks at the wears and tears and seams and stitching and fading, all those aspects are invaluable to the research, which is kind of the counter idea of going to a museum just <laughs> of course and as we just kind of draw to the end I think you've said so many things that really touch on this but maybe to speak to it more directly or to draw it out even further so all these things you've described of small details that can help to retrace someone's experience and their their identity and their presence even within this unimaginably restrictive and oppressive circumstance what is it about materiality and about textiles in particular that can help us understand history differently from the kinds of textual and visual sources that are so often given priority within historical research? I think it's important in the case, especially of a place like Tulsleng and S21, is that the bodies are gone. There were people there and prisoners and people who died and clothing are 
what you have on your body, the closest thing you have on the body is, is clothing. You use clothing for protection, for care, to just be in the world, be a human in the world. And it is, is what supposedly separates you from being treated as an animal. It puts you in the realm of humans. And so looking at textiles in this particular case is pursuing this goal of rehumanizing, of, of bearing witness, but also rehumanizing the process of destruction of what was going on there. Their tactile quality, the proximity to the skin, the sensory dimension, even the fact that visitors complain about the stench when they saw the big pile in 1979, you cannot have the reaction with paper or with photographs. I think it touches on other senses, other emotional connections that humans have. They're not necessarily spoken. They might be faint in some ways. And that's what interests me in that connection. So it's, it's a challenge to make them not as mundane as people might think. But the mundane also is important. I mean, I think in, in those stories of war, there are you know, bombs and death and torture, those big words and trauma. Looking at textiles as those kind of mnemonics in some ways, or those repository of human life and knowledge and people. They're bringing things back to very low level of things, at a very simple level of things, of survival. So they're bringing back other parts of the history, I think. And they're important that way to complement those larger narratives. I think people are so attracted to, and also the nuancing the discussion. I think it's so easy, as you've said, when studying histories of war, to think about this as something that just could have only happened in this one context at this one time. And looking at the everyday dimensions of experiences of war removes a bit the distance and reminds us that this happened to people who are perhaps not so different from us as we might imagine when we read the history book. Yeah, it can happen to all of us. It goes back to kind of primary needs also, like uh, being clothed, being fed. When you read the testimonies of the survivors like Chumay or or Vanat at the same at the at that time, the painter Chumay also was one of the survivors. That's all they talk about. It's about survival. It's about the day-to-day needs, really. And I think textile speaks to that basic need of survival, but this also basic level of identity and humanity in people. Absolutely. Well, I know I am inspired by your work and definitely interested to learn more um, as you continue to work on this project and really interested to see what comes next as you continue during these next two years of your Marie Curie postdocs. Thank you so much, Megali, for speaking with us. Thank you. Thank you so much. My name is Therese Gagnon. I've been in conversation with Megali and Binthon, and you have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast. Thank you for joining the Nordic Asia podcast, showcasing Nordic collaboration in studying Asia. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.